used to take my soils class in Montana out to the landfill every year just as a part of a tour of what happens to our wastes. And they were digging gas extraction wells. This was uh, in the mid-90s. And he pulled up a newspaper from 1972 with Richard Nixon's picture on the front page, and it looked like brand new. It looked absolutely like it was just printed yesterday. A landfill isn't a good place for decomposition. It's a good place for things to last a long time. Welcome to Forestry Smart Policy, a podcast produced by the Oregon Forest Industries Council for policymakers and other thought leaders influencing decisions in Oregon. I'm Chris Edwards, your host and president of OFIC. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Tom DeLuca, who has been Dean of the Oregon State University College of Forestry for just over three years. As an expert in forest soils, Tom holds a doctorate from Iowa State University, a master's degree from Montana State University, and a bachelor's degree from University of Wisconsin-Madison, all in soil science. We discuss all things related to forest soils and carbon, including forestry's role in the carbon cycle, how long carbon is stored in wood products, the benefits of mass timber, and forest management's impact on carbon stored in the soil. Along the way, we also talk about our human connection with trees and wood products, the natural relationship between trees and soil, and the impact of land use decisions on carbon stored in soils. Without further delay, here's my discussion with Dr. Tom DeLuca. All right, today on the Forestry Smart Policy Podcast, I'm super excited to be interviewing Tom DeLuca, Dr. Tom DeLuca, Dean of the OSU College of Forestry. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Before we jump in to the conversation, how about you give us a little bit about your background? Uh, what brought you to Oregon? Okay. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, so prior to coming to OSU, I was the Dean of the College of Forestry and Conservation at the University of Montana. And before that, I was at uh, University of Washington as the director of the School of Environmental and Forest Sciences. My background is in forest soils. I have a PhD in soil science from Iowa State University, and I have worked in forest soils my whole career. All right, forest soils. I'm already making notes <laughs> of some things I want to ask you about later. Uh, and I know that you and I both share a love for the sector for many of the same or similar uh, reasons. I mean, we both see a need for humanity uh, to uh, flourish and thrive. Mm -hmm. And we understand that just inherently everything ultimately rests on natural resource utilization. I mean, everything that we use in our lives mm -hmm. comes from the ocean or the dirt or a hole in the ground. I've always been impressed by just how renewable active management forestry is and the important role that it plays in meeting the needs of modern society. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the folks, you know, really important stakeholders in these conversations might not have the same grounding of knowledge mm -hmm. uh, about forestry mm -hmm. and they're being uh, pushed or pulled in different directions uh, by concerns of the moment, mm -hmm. whereas our members, and certainly the College of Forestry, is really looking at the long term, the long view, mm -hmm. uh, if you will. And so maybe to, to kick the conversation off, we could start talking about the long view, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit of the history mm -hmm. of forest management in, the, in Oregon or the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you, Chris. I'll first just uh, mention that, of course, we'll want to refer to soil as soil, not as dirt. Uh, but that's just a minor <laughs> correction. No, uh, all joking aside, it's interesting. Forestry under U.S. governance doesn't make an appearance on the landscape until the beginning of the last century. And forestry was introduced as the first large-scale conservation practice to be conducted on a landscape level under U.S. governance in response to what had been a sort of cut-out, get-out uh, logging mentality of Europeans as they arrived in the United States from the East Coast through the North Woods and into the West, finally in the West Coast. And that is what resulted in the creation of the National Forest System 
and the establishment of forestry programs at universities all across the U.S., including Oregon State University. The first forestry degrees started being granted in 1907, and that was similar at universities like Washington, Montana, Yale. And the intent was to train that you know, a cadre of foresters that was going to populate this national forest system and manage these forests all across the West with the intent of doing so in very much a conservation-oriented mentality of meeting human resource needs but minimizing impact on the environment. Those are forestry's roots. And um, through the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. Forest Service practiced maximal allowable yield forestry and began to and provided those resources that basically built the growing infrastructure of the United States. All the housing that was going up in eastern United States across the Great Plains, these resources were being used for this purpose. The extent of forest management on federal land hit a rough point with the American public and with the writing of the Monongahela report and the uh, Boley report, really things began to change. And forest management on federal land in the Pacific Northwest really came to a screeching halt with the Northwest Forest Plan in 1994. That really changed the shape of the landscape in the West with what had been intensively managed forests on federal lands that were scheduled for entry for pre-commercial thinning and first thinning and then for a rotation were just set aside. And that has resulted in a very significant change in the, the structure and function of those forests and the condition that we see them in today. Nonetheless, humans' demand for these resources just continue to grow. Roundwood demand is growing lockstep with population growth uh, globally, and we're in a location that is very well suited to sustainably producing timber for this growing population. And as you said, Chris, forestry, unlike most other land uses, is really a sustainable land use. It is grown on long rotations compared to any other you know, agricultural use, and with native species, a native understory, it really is a different beast altogether, but it tends to get a very critical eye because of the visibility of it in particular, given where it sits in the landscape, predominantly in upland settings. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. It, it is a very visible activity, and what's less visible are the market's ability to find other solutions. Mm -hmm. So if we don't responsibly utilize our resources from here, whether that's meeting our own demand or demand elsewhere, predominantly inside the, inside the United States in this case, those materials are going to come from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And they may come from, from ecosystems that do not have the same type of regulation or regulatory um, structure uh, that we have here in in Oregon and it markets are really powerful markets are very powerful engines for finding solutions mm -hmm. uh, and of course while they need to be regulated we need to recognize that they are there regardless of what we do um, here in Oregon and and folks are going to meet the find ways to meet their needs mm -hmm. for uh, resources yeah so. Yeah, and I, I think that something that's lost on a lot of folks is that if we are not producing here in the Pacific Northwest, as you said, it gets produced elsewhere. That the markets will make up for it. It'll, it'll that demand will be met somewhere. And our biggest concern is if it's met in a place where species are imperiled in a big way and environmental laws are such that there those species are not protected. I think we can do a great job here in the Pacific Northwest of producing timber resources sustainably and in a way that meets these human resource demands while minimizing our impact on the environment. And that will continue to be one of those drivers for us as a forestry college of how do we do the very best job possible. And of course, we're talking about 
markets in a global sense, yeah. but we also have some global challenges yeah. like climate change. Yeah. And of course, that is has really focused much of society. Certainly, it's been a focal point of the environmental movement. And forestry has a really strong role yeah. to play in addressing climate change. But perhaps you could talk a little bit about the carbon cycle yeah. and start start grounding this conversation with sort of the big picture yeah. forestry within the carbon cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we all know by this point that climate change is a re result of anthropogenic loading of the atmosphere with CO2 or other greenhouse gases that are produced through a, a number of channels. But by far and away, the number one leading cause of Greenhouse gas loading of the atmosphere comes from the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, 4.5 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide are put into the atmosphere annually here in the United States as a result of fossil fuel burning. If you look down the list of the other sources, primary sources of greenhouse gas emissions, they will be orders of magnitude less than the fossil fuel consumption source, but it'll be production of a host, a, a range of industrial products, including concrete and steel, as well as a number of industrial products. And then the agricultural sector with the fertilization and annual tillage is a significant contributor. And forestry, as you'll note, as a sector, is a net sink of carbon. It does not show up as a contributor to greenhouse gas, net greenhouse gas loading of the atmosphere in the United States or globally. And that's important because we have areas where that is not the case, such as where there is deforestation occurring and people inaccurately conflate deforestation with forestry, and they're two very different things. Forestry is growing of successive crops of, of timber with intention and a specific intention to harvest and replant and grow another future stands of timber. Deforestation is the clearing of land for urban settings, for agricultural production, for industrial production. They're very different and people tend to mix those up. So forestry as a sector is a net sink for carbon, and that's something that we're really proud of and something that we want to build upon and recognize that the timber sector can generate structural building materials that can displace some of the carbon-emitting building materials on a global scale that we can talk about a little later on if there's time. So let's talk a little bit more about the concept that you said, a net sink, you know, a little bit about uh, carbon sequestration, how that works, the forest role um, in the carbon cycle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You asked me to talk about the carbon cycle, and now I realize I, I didn't get back to the cycle because it is a cycle. Ca carbon is constantly, globally, naturally, carbon is constantly being uh, emitted as CO2 and absorbed by biological plant life and converted back into what we call reduced carbon, uh, into sugars and cellulose and uh, lignin and into proteins and you name it. It goes into biological carbon and both in the ocean as well as in the terrestrial landmass. And uh, CO2 is also absorbed into the ocean and, and precipitated out as carbonates into deep sea sediments. And so the, the earth is literally breathing. It's releasing carbon dioxide and it's absorbing carbon dioxide. And it's that net emission of carbon dioxide that's adding an excess amount of carbon dioxide to the, to the atmosphere. And greenhouse gas, gases writ large, I should say, CO2 as well as other greenhouse gases. And in the case of burning fossil fuels, those are buried in geologic deposits that would not interact with the atmosphere if we didn't drill them, refine them, and burn them. And it's only at the end of that process of burning that we have that net addition to the atmosphere. So when I refer to forestry as a net sink for carbon, what I mean is that it is in the short term, geologically speaking, it is storing more carbon than it is emitting. So 
if the forest as it's growing takes CO2 and water and sunlight and creates sugars and those sugars go into the to the function of that tree either into the biomass or into the processes that keep the tree alive that results ultimately when that is converted into wood that it's stored for a relatively long period of time in a Douglas fir that might be anywhere from 50 to you know 800 years or in a blade of grass it might be 6 months or 8 months that it's stored in that biological form the vast majority of carbon in the terrestrial landmass actually exists below ground in soil so as trees fall to the earth and decompose a certain percentage of that goes into what we call the soil organic matter and it's both stored in surface soils as well as down deep in the soil and an enormous amount of carbon is stored below ground so it's stored both in the standing live timber of those of those time frames that i talked about you know 50 to you know 800 years or it's stored in the soil organic matter or short term in animals and herbaceous vegetation so it's not <laughs> you've already corrected me in calling it <laughs> soil instead of dirt I kind of feel like dirt has a little bit, it's a little more folksy, but uh, yeah. so I may continue to call it dirt, but I'll try to be a little bit smarter about this. So we're talking about carbon stored in soils, or if it were, if it was carbon that was grown in, you know, into that tree, yeah. then that's carbon stored until it either A, decays, or B, is burned. Yeah. Is there any, I'm not sure if there's anything else that could happen to it that would release carbon. No, uh, those are the two routes for it to be converted to carbon Okay, dioxide. so in our homes, mm-hmm. you know, that we live in, most of us in the Pacific Northwest live in wood-framed mm-hmm. uh, housing. Mm-hmm. The frame mm-hmm. that creates the structure of that house, that is storing carbon. Yes. So there was no emission when that, when that house was built or when that log, when that tree... Mm-hmm was felled in the woods, and then that didn't become an emission. The, the felling of the tree itself is not an emission. Right. The uh, use of diesel to power vehicles that are felling timber, of course, is of course. a source of emission. When you delimb the tree and burn the slash, that's an, an emission. And when you burn mill residues at the mill, that's another source of emission. So you might come out with anywhere between, let's say, because a significant amount is left in the root mass in the ground, which also decomposes and releases. You might have, say, in the wood that's actually milled, 35% of the total tree mass is going into a wood product. And that has different lengths of time until it decays based on its what it's turned into, what it's what you're producing, and how it's used. So when you put that wood product into use into a home, it's up for a long time. We hope to see those homes, like the home that I'm living in was only built in the 1990s, but the house we lived in in Helena, Montana, for example, was built in uh, 1901. So, and it's still standing today. I just saw it not that long ago. Uh, when I was interviewing for a job in Britain at one time, we went out to a pub that was built in 1400s, and the timbers that are still there uh, after uh, 700 years, you know, are, are sitting there intact. So depending on the use, it can be a very long-term storage of carbon as a, as a standing structure, or even when that material goes into the landfill, it may last for a long time in the landfill. A landfill is intentionally sealed as a tomb. You basically try to keep the water out so you don't get leaching of toxins through the landfill, and you try to minimize the amount of air because air isn't good in the landfill. You want to maximize the mass that fits in there, not a bunch of air. So you compact and compact and compact, and you put layers of seals, you know, and cells clay caps to try to minimize the water moving through. One time I, uh, I used to take my soils class in Montana out to um, the landfill 
every year just as a part of a tour of what happens to our wastes. Because we as consumers generate a lot of waste. And they were digging gas extraction wells. And this was uh, in the mid-90s. And he pulled up a newspaper from 1972 with Richard Nixon's picture on the front page, and it looked like brand new. It looked absolutely like it was just printed yesterday. Now, that's not true of every landfill and not true, of, but it was just incredibly instructive to those students that a landfill is a place, isn't a good place for decomposition. It's a good place for things to last a long time. And that, that has to be factored into that length of time that those wood products that go into the landfill last. Ideally, we keep reusing wood products, such as with mass timber, which we may talk about later, uh, that have the potential to be repurposed at the end of their building lifespan. You just said a bunch there. And yeah, I have sorry. like three <laughs> things that I want to return to oh, before we move on. Okay. So first, even if even if those wood products were to decompose, they started out as a part of the natural carbon cycle. Yes. As opposed to carbon that came from yeah. embedded, you know, yeah. deep below, uh, deep in the crust of the earth. Yeah. That type of decomposition is not a net contributor to the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Th is that's, that a correct that, statement? That is incorrect? absolutely correct. And thank you for clarifying that point because it's a really important one. All that carbon that's going to be released by that tree being burned or being used in one way or another is carbon that was fixed within the, the lifespan of that tree. When we see the needles uh, being burned in a slash pile, for example, along with stems, the needles are the most recently fixed carbon in the tree, basically, and the, that might have just been fixed within the last year. So yes, the the... You're absolutely right. That's a really good point and one that needs to be considered. Another uh, item that I wanted to return to was when you were speaking of how old houses are. Mm -hmm. So just as it, because I've heard folks talk about, well, you can't assume that a built structure is going to last that long. It may only last 30 years. So I just did a very informal poll on my Facebook page and I just said, hey, Everybody, when was the house built that you're living in? Whether it's whether you own it, you're renting it, it's an apartment. And people were posting, oh, when it was built in the 90s, when it was built in the 70s. Uh, my parents, the house that they still live in that was built in the 60s, got a lot of answers mm -hmm. that were sort of built in that post-World War II yeah. era, which of course is you know much more than 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And then people were chiming in saying, oh, well, we built in... The house that we live in was built in the early 1900s or the 1920s or the 19 teens. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about structures that are 80, 90, 100 years old, mm -hmm. over 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And that is a very different, very different picture. I also, in that same survey, asked if anybody was living in a home or on a lot that had been redeveloped. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any answers. Now, of course, they're. Of course, that does exist, mm -hmm. but just in my little world, mm -hmm. nobody said, "Oh, yeah, you know, we live in a in a redeveloped lot, or we bulldozed the lot and we rebuilt a new structure." Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this notion of how long wood lasts mm -hmm. in a standing non non decomposing state after it comes out of the forest, uh, I think, is something important yeah. to for folks to wrap their heads around. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one can calculate half-lives or, you know, resonance times for different uses of wood products, whether it's paper or structural building materials or furniture. You can come up with a pretty good estimate of that. Uh, but, but it's all based on a, a set of, you know, a certain set of assumptions which may or may, or may not be correct. But I think that with housing and, you know, our hope is that when we build a house, it's going to be there for a long time, ideally. With large buildings, they tend to build with a specific design life. And, for example, the dormitories that they were tearing down when I was at University of Washington were built with a design life of 60 years. And they went and tore them down at 60 years and rebuilt. And they tore down steel and concrete 
structures hmm. that were net emitters when they went up and they rebuilt with uh, another set of steel and concrete-based structures uh, with wood trim and wood windows and that type of thing. But it's interesting, the vast majority of mass in our landfills is construction materials. So, wow. That's, uh, yeah, that is interesting. And that's mass. And yeah. that's because concrete weighs a lot. You know, it has a high density <laughs> yes, <it does. laughs> and, uh, and we generate a lot of construction waste. Yeah. So one of the other items I wanted to return to is, is you made the statement that I, I knew what you were talking about when you, when you talked about the waste that might be burned at the mill. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, you know, the bar, yeah. the stuff that's not, that doesn't become a sheet of veneer or a piece of plywood or yeah. a, a shaving or a sawdust, yeah. which of course have other uses in yeah. composite materials. But there is a certain amount of material yeah. that gets burned yeah. Uh, at the mill, but it's burned to produce energy. That's correct. Right? So yeah. it itself is substituting yes. for other carbon-intensive forms of energy. I mean, it, if you have a, a natural gas peaker plant yeah. uh, or some other form, you know, coal, natural gas, a, a fossil fuel-intensive yeah. energy source versus burning uh, the residual waste, say the bark off a tree, Yep. Uh, to produce energy, one is clearly more carbon preferable yes. and actually carbon neutral. Yes, absolutely. That's a really good point. And that, that is absolutely true of mill residues that uh, get burned as hog fuel at a minimum or sometimes in really advanced boilers that are generating electricity. And so they offset or substitute for fossil fuel-based uses of energy, which is uh, a direct offset that needs to be considered when looking at the total emission of uh, carbon dioxide associated with the wood product. One other thing I wanted to return to was the statement you made that only 35% of the total tree mass actually makes it into a, a finished building product. And, and I believe that statement was grounded on the fact that you were also talking about wood mass at that exist below the soil yes. or in the soil. Yes, so that, absolutely. That, all that root mass. All the root mass. Above ground, it would be a much higher percentage yes. uh, than yeah. 35%. Yeah, it's just the, the and, limbs that and the tops that don't go to the mill end up being burned in place. But the, the root mass accounts for about 20, 25% of the tree as a whole. A lot of people think it's 50% yeah. of the tree's mass is below ground, but it's more like, tw- I should have said 20 to 35%, I think, uh, that ends up being below ground. It depends on the type of tree. Of course, we can take that same acre yep. that we just removed trees from, mm-hmm. and now we're storing, you know, that has all the, all the societal benefits that we've already referred to, has the carbon storage benefits that we've already referred to, and we can now take that acre mm-hmm and replant it, mm-hmm. continuing that cycle. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's talk a little bit then about uh, what it is that we're able to build mm-hmm. out of wood products, because there's a lot of advances uh, in that world and what what we can do yeah. with wood products, and a lot of that's being driven at the OSU College of Forestry. Yeah. So tell us more about that. Yeah, mass timber. It's part of a revolution in tall building in the United States and abroad. Basically, we have these materials that are mass plywood panels, cross-laminated timber, glue-lamb beams. Uh, These aren't necessarily new things that have just recently been developed, but have been developed over years, both in overseas as well as here at home. So OSU plays a significant role in that, having a really uh, solid wood science and engineering program that has lasted through the decades. A lot of universities around the nation folded their wood science programs. There's a few standouts around OSU, uh, University of Maine, Virginia Tech, um, North Carolina State, but they're, they're few and far between, Mississippi State, I believe. Anyhow, so that's something we're really proud of, having that really strong wood science and engineering program here in the college. Uh, They're working on a whole range of mass timber products that can be used in structural building. Well, basically over the last 80 years, 
There have been restrictions on how tall you can build with wood because of fire concerns. The reason for that is, is that each individual stud has, is surrounded by oxygen, basically, and so in a fire, that stud can burn fairly quickly. With these mass timber products, such as cross-laminated timber, while the outside layers might char during a fire, they retain their structural integrity far longer than steel would under that same condition. So OSU has been directly involved in the development of some of these materials, but also the structural testing. And with the new Tallwood Design Institute that's at OSU, which is a joint effort between University of Oregon's architecture program, OSU's College of Forestry, and OSU's College of Engineering, we work with industry to provide this outlet for innovation and testing in mass timber and mass timber construction. And so um, uh, we just had a three-story building built indoors inside of the Emerson Advanced Wood Products building, which is where Tallwood Design Institute is located. And uh, we were able to you know, test it with a strong wall and strong floor doing seismic testing on these structures. So it's very exciting. Uh, we're, we're helping move the needle on mass timber construction. I think it's one of the most exciting things for architects that they've had in decades. And so architects are looking at mass timber as a way to, A, displace some amount of steel and concrete in tall wood design and to bring down the net carbon intensity of that structure, as well as the versatility associated with it. It's lightweight. You can have all sorts of detail done at the mill site and then have it shipped out to the build site for a very quick assembly relative to how long it would take to build the same structure and steel and concrete. And it's also exceptionally quiet on the build site, which is kind of an interesting additional fact associated with mass timber construction. I just visited the new Hartwood building that went up in Seattle. We were just up there last week visiting with the architect and the builders. And uh, Susan Jones of Jones Atelier and Swinnerton, the company responsible for the construction, it was just, first of all, it's a beautiful building. It was for low to mid-income residential living, and it was infill. So in a very small space, they put up this eight-story building with very little disturbance of the area surrounding, and it uh, was constructed quickly. It's still under construction. There's still uh, more work to be done, but it was a, a great example of a way that mass timber can help densify urban living, minimize sprawl and consumption of rural landscapes into urban development, and build with a low-carbon, totally renewable building material. Yeah, that's that's super exciting because now you're taking uh, wood structures from the suburbs, if you will, small towns in the suburbs to really city cores. Yes. You know, and, and helping densify Everybody knows that we need more housing, yeah. uh, not just here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. I mean, this is a national issue. Yeah. Yes. And, it's a uh, global issue. It's a global <laughs> issue. It's a global issue, and the housing is going to come from somewhere, yeah. and it is going to be built with something, yeah. and we have a choice. Yeah. And wood is beautiful. It's warm it, in terms of as an R value associated with wood as opposed to other material. And it's simply relaxing to be in a wood structure as opposed to a concrete structure. It just really is. Yeah, there is something about our connection with wood as a material. I was at a meeting uh, last week. Mm -hmm. They opened the meeting with an icebreaker question. Mm -hmm. And the icebreaker question was, what do you have in your life that is made of wood that you value the most? Hmm. And as we went around the room, there was so much emotional connection mm-hmm. between the trinket that had been mm-hmm. ha- handed down mm-hmm. or or the, the dining room hutch mm-hmm. or the, the century-old dining room table mm-hmm. or the rocking chair yeah. Yeah. or the house that granddad had built. I mean, yeah. there were all these things that people felt a real connection to. And I remember when I left that meeting thinking, I don't feel like the 
answers would have been as heartfelt if the question had been, what object do you own made of steel mm -hmm. or plastic mm -hmm. uh, that you yeah. care about most? Yeah, you know? yeah. So no, it's really true. Anyway, it's just a little side thing about yeah. it. No, that's really, that's great. And I, I could add to that, certainly, in terms of what things are valuable in our house that are made out of wood, that the, so many things that are, have traveled with us overseas and back again. And um, one thing I wanted to just finish up with, with the mass timber construction, which I think is really exciting and really important, and I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, is the uh, that architects are now drawing up blueprints for construction and blueprints for deconstruction of mass timber buildings, because you can. When you can deconstruct a steel and concrete building, you generally demolish it. You try to recycle the steel. So you have to ship it off and, and uh, recycle the steel. And then the concrete uh, can be ground and reused, but it's energy intensive uh, and oftentimes goes to the landfill as capping material, as a recycled use. Whereas with, with these mass timber panels, you can actually repurpose them, pull them out of the building so they have the instructions, the blueprints for deconstructing the building, pulling the panels out. And then you can CNC cut the building, the panels for a new building and reconstruct with this material. That takes a 80 or 100 year design life of a building and just extends that lifespan of that material that much further. These products are really special and uh, we're really excited about the future that, that they hold for the people that will be using them as well as the carbon neutrality of the material as well. That's, that's super cool. One of the things that I've, I've noticed as mass timber picks up steam as an as a exciting new building material is that where there was, I mean, there's always been concern about forest practices and the sustainability and Certainly one of the things that we do here at OFIC and, and elsewhere in the sector is try to educate people about the sustainability. And that's part of why we're having this conversation today. But there have been architects that have been saying, well, how do we know that it's sustainable? Mm -hmm. How do we know that it's sustainably sourced? Mm -hmm. And of course, we have we had the Private Forest Accord, which is a huge rewrite of, yeah. of regulatory practices here in the state of Oregon. And the state of Washington has, has their uh, regulatory uh, framework, Forest and Fish. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line, as far as I can see, mm -hmm. is that here in the Pacific Northwest, we're the most regulated, the most, the most modern mm -hmm. regulatory practices uh, in the nation. Yeah. You know, for whatever reason, mass timber seems to be bringing a new focus mm -hmm. onto the regulatory yeah. framework. And I just wondering if, if you guys are thinking about that at the college or if you have any thoughts about about yeah. just sustainability generally yeah, here in the Northwest. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have a lot of opinions on the sustainability of forest and forestry as a practice. I think there's a lot of misinformation about forestry as a practice. I think that there tends to be a lot of concern that's raised out of a aesthetic concerns that are translated from when a forest is clear cut, for example, as opposed to the actual numbers that would be associated with, well, how does that function over the long term in terms of net carbon storage or ecosystem function. Humans have a unique connection to trees. People love trees. That's all there is to sure. it. And so the tendency is to, because a tree also outlives us in terms of lifespan, we sort of revere a tree as really special in that regard. And so we tend to perhaps inadvertently overestimate the value of that system from a biodiversity perspective. Those forests are exceptionally important from a biodiversity perspective, no question about it. But so were the low elevation riparian areas that are now urban centers, which we all live. We made a gigantic clear cut and we chose to live in it and plant back a few exotic species, as well as some native species. But 
the vast majority of our our high what would have been exceptionally high biodiversity landscapes, the places where most animals want to live, we want to live. And we think, though, when we look up at the mountains, because that's where the vast majority of biodiversity is retained today, that that's where it always was. But it's a bit of a misconception about biodiversity on a landscape scale and our role in disturbance of it. We are consumers and we demand resources at an exceptional rate, especially as our population grows. And so we, we, t- we, we tend to um, ignore the fact that our consumption is driving those decisions and those uh, practices. People do have a really unique connection to trees and to forests, and we tend to think of them in a special way because they, they have such a long lifespan. We don't have nearly that affinity for young trees. Of course, with animals, though, puppies, humans, babies, the babies are the most you know, revered part of a household. We don't have that sense when it comes to trees. It's just an interesting... I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Seedlings are not as cute as puppies. No, they're not. Seedlings are... We're all in agreement. (laughs) And yeah, I guess I was just trying to explain the, the, you know, the sort of strange disconnect that people have when they think about forests versus other well, parts right. of the landscape. Well, you're right. I talk with people all the time that want private landowners to grow their trees longer, Yeah. to grow them older. Mm-hmm. And then once they're older, they say, whoa, now you can't cut them because yeah. they're, they're old. We, yeah. They're more revered yeah. as, they, as they get older. And yeah. so it's like, well, what do you want us to do? Yeah. And, and it's it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient for people to to really sit down and think about like, well, where are we going to get yeah. the resources to provide for our society? Well, and and it is com- it's complicated. It is, isn't it? It and is. and it's it's I, I completely understandable that people would that aren't in the sector might not understand it very well. And going back to that point, I think that that. The tendency is to think of a managed forest as being, uh, you know, biodiversity bankruptcy, but it's not. It is actually um, a, a managed forest that's grown with native species and has a native understory, has a surprisingly high native biodiversity associated with it. That's something to build off of and to recognize and expand upon. Uh, and the SAF Code of Ethics. Uh, SAF is as a Society of American Foresters has a code of ethics, and the number I think it's number three is we will always strive to do better, and that has to be our our mantra that we're going to strive to we'll always strive to do better, and I think the next one is that that our work will be based on the best available science, and that's where we as a college come in. That our job is to pursue an understanding of what that what does that look like to produce timber efficiently and economically while having the minimal impact on the environment. And that that's what sustainability is, and that's what we are indeed pursuing as a college. But um, uh, I'm not sure I answered your earlier question, which— No, you did. And let's okay. tee off of that concept. Uh, one, one other thing I wanted to ask you about sustainability is, you know, I've, I've talked with folks that have said, well, yeah, Chris, you can— harvest and replant and you can harvest and replant but you're ruining the soil mm-hmm. when you do that mm-hmm. now and when i hear people talk about mm-hmm. the impacts to the soil mm-hmm. and their concerns about mm-hmm. us being able to do that indefinitely right. and continuing that those rotations on that land base mm-hmm. but then that to me doesn't quite square with what you said earlier about the percentage of woody biomass that is actually in the soil mm-hmm. and left in the soil yeah. yes. after harvest. So yep. maybe you could talk a little bit about sustainability yep. from a soil's perspective because yeah. it all starts in the dirt. <laughs> yes, I'm not giving you, up on the term dirt yet. <laughs> it, it all starts in the soil. We'll just okay. uh, we'll, uh, agree to disagree there. Um, <laughs> oh, so yes, I, I totally agree that the importance of of maintaining productive, healthy soil for a functioning ecosystem is, you know, uh, so important. There is a sense that as you 
harvest timber, take off a rotation and start another, plant and start another, that over time that system will degrade. The fact is, is that the soil is surprisingly resilient. And if you look at the effect of multiple rotations on soil organic matter, total soil carbon storage, the effects of timber harvest on soil carbon storage are fairly minimal. The organic horizon that sits on the soil surface, the forest floor as it's called, or the litter layer, and the surface decomposing material as well as what we used to call the humus layer, those can be lost as they're disturbed and moved into the soil surface and some of that lost, but the the vast majority of the carbon is stored in the mineral soil and that is surprisingly very solid over time with any uh, disturbance. Now, getting back to the heart of the question, if we contrast forest management with even here in the Pacific Northwest, the shortest rotations are about 35 years, 35 to 40 years. In and parts of the state that grow trees that's right, extraordinarily in the, fast. On the West Coast, yeah. yeah, and in the west side of the Cascades. Yeah. That would be the shortest rotation that is used. If we contrast that with any other land use, it's exceptionally long. Not Very few people plant a crop and think, well, I'll come back in 35 or 40 years and check on it. Well, the whole time that the, the forest is growing, the soil is in rest, so to say. In agricultural practice, you tend to till every year and uh, replant because we plant annuals predominantly on the landscape. Even in no-till agriculture, where we're not tilling so much, you know, you've got equipment on the soil surface on an annual basis. In timber production, the soil's in rest for at least that 40, 35 to 40 years. And in longer rotation forestry, it's 80 years or 100 years. And in uneven age stand management, there may be entries for thinning or variable retention harvest, or but the disturbance is just the surface equipment. It is not tillage. So the soil organic matter content is very stable over time with forest management compared to any other land management practice. The soil biodiversity is also surprisingly resilient to the effects of management especially in these systems with native species and native uh, understories, such as here in the Pacific Northwest, where we're growing dug fir and, you know, as well as western red cedar, uh, hemlock. We end up with a, an amazingly sustainable system is the truth of the matter. Yeah, and there are a lot of variables yes. and factors that are being considered by the land manager when they're making their decisions and one of those decisions um, is weighing the risk of wildfire. Mm -hmm. So as, as wildfire uh, prevalence and severity increases mm -hmm. on the landscape, uh, I know I've talked with, with members of, the, of our trade association, the land managers, they're saying, look, we have to account for that increased risk. The, the, longer, the longer we carry, that that stand on the landscape before harvest, the greater the chance that it is eventually going to get consumed by a wildfire. Mm -hmm. So that's that is something that is something that really is weighing on this conversation about rotation age. Mm -hmm. That I think some folks, you know, why would they why would they um, have an understanding of of that risk because they haven't thought about it mm -hmm. from that perspective. They're thinking more about it from maybe a, a carbon perspective, or they're thinking about it from a soils perspective. Right. And uh, that wildfire risk and the heightened risk uh, in recent decades is a finger on the scale, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak, for that decision making. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. So maybe you could expand a little bit on the notion of sustainability and the concept of sustainability as it pertains specifically to forest soils and soil health. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd love to do that. I, first of all, when we think about soils and we think about soil health, soils 
are teeming with life. Like a single, a single gram of soil, like a, a teaspoon of soil, has billions of bacterial cells, kilometers of fungal hyphae. You know, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. It's micro life, but it is teeming with life. All the microarthropods and the amoebas and the rotifers and the, all these uh, incredible organisms. And they're all dependent on carbon, reduced carbon, coming into their environment. In other words, sugars that are produced by plants. So soils live in symbiosis. This living life in the soil lives in direct symbiosis with the plant canopy that lives above it, whether it's grassland or a forest or mixed savanna. And the trees constantly pump carbon into the ground. And you might think, why would they do that? Why would they just leak carbon into the soil? Because of that symbiosis. They're literally feeding this microbial community. Most people are familiar with mycorrhiza. They've heard a lot about it, and they've especially heard you know, recently with the uh, Mother Tree, the book by Susan Samard that describes the mycorrhizal relationships and connections between trees. And so they think about it from that perspective. But trees just leak carbon to the free soil microbes as well. And they feed this community. And in turn, the community turns over nutrients, degrades mineral nutrients, and releases those for the tree's uptake. So it's this beautiful symbiosis that lives between the plant community and the microbial community below ground. And it's dependent on that continual cover of uh, vegetation on the soil. And every time we have just completely bare soil surface, we're starving the soil for what it needs. It needs the carbon from the atmosphere, you know, from the atmosphere fixed by the plants and fed to the soil. And there's also, in addition to the root exudates, there's all the sloughed off root tissue and, and the turnover of the mycorrhizal tissue and you name it. Forestry, as a practice, leaves an intact plant community in place for decades. That is not true of most other land uses. And, you know, agriculture is wonderful. It's feeding the world, right? And we depend on agriculture for the foods that we eat. But people usually don't think much about the fact that you till that soil annually and you keep it clean till during the off-season, the non-growing season. Well, that's not feeding that carbon into the system. And so people are devising alternative practices that maximize the cover of carbon of, of plants on the landscape throughout the growing season. But in forestry, we always grow that way. We have the overstory and the understory intact for anywhere from 35 to you know 80 or 90 year rotation for a given operation, or if it's uneven age stand management and continual cover forestry, we never have the soil fully exposed ever. And even in the case of an individual rotation where a harvest is conducted, today we're using equipment that minimizes the impact to the soil landscape, but much more so than uh, equipment used 20, 40 years ago. The amount of disturbance is uh, spatially it's not uh, continual across the landscape. In other words, there are areas where there's, you know, the wheel or tread turns up soil, but the soil is not tilled itself. There is a fair amount of disturbance. There is incorporation of the O-horizon material down into the soil, and you do get a pulse of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But very soon thereafter, you have the replanting of trees and within 10 years, you have almost complete coverage once again, and this uh, thriving plant community putting carbon into the understory. And now you have your rotation length ahead of you now, 35, another, you know, 35 years ahead or without any soil disturbance and that system being fed constantly. So forest soils are in amazingly good shape from a sustainability perspective compared to any other land use across the globe. It's surprisingly good from a soil health perspective compared to any other land use that's meeting those human resource needs. In other words, it's producing products that are necessary for our 
our survival as a species, whether that's shelter, as a roof over our heads, or whether that's producing crops for consumption. Yeah, I think there has been a lot of focus on within forestry, what's okay, what's not okay. And it seems like those conversations don't always take into account the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And that is that on particularly on parcels that are near urban centers Mm -hmm. or in those transition lands, although we do have a land use system in Oregon, the land use system does not say that nothing else can be done Mm -hmm. with that land. And in fact, we see uh, land, even land that is currently in a UGB was not always in a UGB. And it can become housing, it can become a shopping center, it can become a road, it can become agriculture, it can become a winery. There are all sorts of things that uh, could become the fate of that of that forest parcel. Mm-hmm. Particularly in areas like where you live in Corvallis. I mean, Corvallis yeah. is a great example because it's nestled right up against the coast range. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a lot of those, seems like those transition type lands. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, uh, right now, right near our house, there is a whole new development going in. Uh, when we moved in, I assumed that forest would still remain a forest, but working forest or, uh, or a park, but it's not. There's a, a whole set of new buildings going in in that area from a carbon perspective and from a land use management perspective, of course, it's sad to see those forests taken out of production. But it's interesting too that, you know, there's a, there's a lot more forest on the landscape around Corvallis than there was when Europeans arrived. Of course, indigenous people managed the land for millennia before Europeans arrived. The vast majority of the area around Corvallis was oak savanna. So a lot of open hill slopes, sort of like the Chip Ross uh, area, you know, with grass and uh, these big spreading oaks. And you'll find those big spreading oaks in those dug fir forests. We tend to see the landscape today and think, oh, that's how it's always been. And that's how it it will be forever. But it's not that way. There's a constant (laughs) change happening. It's also really important to acknowledge that humans were part of this landscape going back thousands and thousands of years, and they were using those resources and managing that land for, as I said, millennia, perhaps doing it with a different eye to demands and desires. But the fact of the matter is is that these lands were being managed and uh, continue to be managed today. And just for different purposes. Your explanation of what's going on below the surface of the soil leads me to concede that perhaps because it's so complicated, I should stop calling it dirt <laughs> and Thank uh, you. <laughs> and referring to it as soil because soil is much more complicated and complex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, soil is the word that is clearly more sophisticated. So... Um, any other thoughts uh, that you have, uh, Dean DeLuca, before you leave us today? Well, I, I'll just finish by saying that, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to share with you all today. And I, I think that there's, there's a story to be told around forestry that isn't being told currently, that's being lost in the midst of confusion over what constitutes conservation and, and what constitutes protection of our landscapes in a way that will meet our human resource needs while at the same time protecting the broadest array of species and treasured resources, such as, you know, keeping carbon in the ground as much as possible and in, the, uh, in our landscapes as much as possible. I think that forestry is one of the most sustainable land uses in practice today, but that we as foresters have to commit to doing better. We have got to always go back to that SAF commitment to always do better and to base it on the best available science. And it'll prove us out as a sector in the long run. I love that. Always do better, best available science. 
if I could add one thing to uh, the credo there, I would, <laughs> I would, I would say, uh, work to depoliticize uh, <laughs> forestry or depoliticize science, and that's what we're trying to do uh, through efforts like this. And it's uh, it's not fun when you can see you can see all the good that's happening and the, the potential and the real role that forestry has, but we get caught up in the political prop wash, uh, if you will, mm -hmm. at times. And uh, that can certainly be frustrating. But that's for a whole another podcast episode. So uh, with that, I think we'll wrap this up. Thanks, Tom, for being uh, with us. Yeah, great. Thank you, Chris. I hope you enjoyed this episode on carbon and forest soils. Be sure to check back for new content coming your way soon on the Forestry Smart Policy Podcast. And as always, if you have a question about this episode or something else, drop us a note at podcast at OFIC.com.